0: Let's get started by thanking our wonderful sponsors who make this show possible every week. We can't thank them enough. Many patients come to my practice thinking they have to stop wearing their contact lenses due to dry eye discomfort, but that's not the case. With products and services offered through ABB Optical's dry eye portfolio, like Regenerize Light, a biologic eye drop, I can help patients manage their dry eye symptoms and ship dry eye products directly through ABB, allowing me to have happy, satisfied patients. Interested in learning more? Visit abboptical.com forward slash dry eye. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day. The first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you.
1: Vision Edge gives you less eye strain and reduced damage caused by blue light. We like to call Vision Edge sunscreen for the eye. It all starts with your highest level of visual performance, only achievable through scientifically proven Vision Edge.
0: Hello and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at OpenYourEyes2020.com. Featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists from around the country, sharing information on eye care and eye disease. If you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. Also, please leave comments. Do you experience irritated, gritty, scratchy, watery, changing vision or burning eyes? If you do, you may be suffering from dry eyes. Dry eyes can be mild, but dry eyes can also be associated with many systemic diseases and have serious complications. Severe dry eye diagnosed through an eye exam many times is the first indication of common systemic and or autoimmune diseases. Today's guest, Arizona optometrist, Dr. Art Epstein, has dedicated his life's work to the treatment and research of dry eye disease. Patients travel from as far as Cairo, Egypt to the dry eye center of Arizona to seek the expertise of Dr. Epstein. Dr. Epstein is a sought-after speaker, prolific author, with hundreds of articles, scientific papers, and book chapters published. He founded and serves as chief medical editor of Optometric Physician and teaches a dry eye masterclass. Dr. Epstein, thank you for joining me today. Very
1: absolutely a pleasure. Thank you for that very, very kind introduction. Uh, and uh, I'll second your suggestion to view that incredible movie you produced. It's definitely uh, it's definitely worth uh, worth watching.
0: Well, I appreciate that. So let's get into it. So is dry eyes an epidemic?
1: I mean, you know, that's that's an interesting question. When when I first relocated from New York, and uh, you know, perhaps the viewers can hear a little bit of that New York accent uh, to Arizona. Oh. I, uh, I uh, felt that, you know, dry eye was certainly more prevalent, uh, but as I delved further into dry eye, which is uh, obviously very common uh, uh, in the dry environment of Arizona, and eventually, uh, you know, soon after opening our practice, limited my practice to dry eye, uh, I began to realize that we're seeing numbers of patients that were unprecedented. We're seeing more and more dry eye than uh, we ever have in the past. Uh, in younger and younger populations, uh, and much greater severity. Uh, And I I know we're going to talk about a lot of the underlying causes, but uh, certainly the world has changed dramatically. Our bodies weren't designed uh, necessarily for the the world we live in today. Uh, And as a result, the eyes really take uh, a tremendous beating. uh, And uh, the consequences uh, for many patients are the misery of dry eye.
0: So what is actually the definition of dry eye?
1: Oh, that's, you, you've asked a great question. I spend a, a good part of my day uh, telling patients, I know, Mrs. Smith, you're here uh, because you've been told or you've uh, researched on Google uh, and can, uh, concluded that you have dry eye. But the problem isn't uh, that your eyes are dry. It's not that you're not making enough tears. The problem is that your tears are uh, not functioning properly, you know, which kind of begs a, a cascade of questions about what specifically that means, what are our tiers, what are tiers do tears uh, do. Fortunately, we, we have a good definition. Uh, we have a group called the Tear Film Inocular Surface Society, uh, and every 10 years or so they host a, uh, a large meeting of experts, Uh, called the dry eye workshop. And the most recent definition, which is something I don't have memorized, I probably should have it tattooed on, you know, on my hand, but uh, uh, essentially incorporates, uh, you know, the uh, key concepts of, you know, tear dysfunction, uh, failure to maintain homeostasis, which is something we could talk a fair amount about, because I think that's the genesis of a lot of diseases uh, today. Uh, And uh, a number of other things, you know, changes in tear film, uh, uh, qualities and 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 abilities. Uh, but essentially, if if you wanted to distill it down into the simplest form, it's uh, one of the most miserable disorders uh, that we face clinically because it's uh, you know chronic, it's progressive, it's it's persistent, uh, and it's very disruptive to normal function.
0: Up to three hundred systemic diseases could affect the eye. And many times a dry eyes can be the initial, symptom of a systemic disease, whether, like I said, either autoimmune or any other type of systemic disease. So if you could go over some of the systemic diseases that cause di- dry eye, let's start with diabetes.
1: You know, it, it's, in, it's interesting. You kind of hit the nail squarely on the head. Um, you know, we, we live in, a, in, in an environment where our foods uh, are different than they were at the inception of, of mankind. Uh, you know, we, our, our visual tasking is different. We're certainly seeing you know, tremendous increases in the number of patients that are pre-diabetic, the number of patients that are diabetic. We know that diabetes has a significant impact on a lot of different systems. In some cases, you know, catastrophic uh, impact. On the eyes, is actually quite interesting. And uh, there's a fair amount of uh, controversy. There's a lot uh, less understood than there is understood, I, I suspect. But one of the things that diabetes causes is interference with the transmission of nerve signals. Uh, you know, diabetics very often complain of, you know, neuropathy. They have pain. They have loss of sensation in the extremities. Uh, the eyes are uh, probably one of the best examples of a networked uh, environment. And what I mean by that is I'm not talking about vision, which is the conversion of light energy into sight through this incredibly beautiful, complex uh, Uh, set of mechanisms and pathways, but I'm talking about just maintaining the uh, ocular surface environment. The ocular surface environment is is critically important uh, simply because that's how light enters the eye. So a perfectly smooth refractive surface, which is uh, produced by the tears, is essential uh, to good vision and certainly a very important factor in, in selection and evolution. Our ancestors that had good stable tear films were uh, survivors who were able to see predators from a distance and, you know, forage for food successfully because they, you know, they had the advantage of, of, of better vision. Uh, if we interfere with the control pathways, the sensory pathways, uh, the cornea, for example, uh, is the most heavily innervated tissue in the body. We've known that for years, you know, some say it's, you know. Uh, 150 to 300 times the nerve endings that you'd have in, in, in skin. Uh, you know, nothing happens in nature uh, by accident. You know, that wasn't like something, oh, I'm, I'm just going to give the cornea more nerves than I'm going to give the rest of the body. So it can feel a, a piece of grit more, uh, kind of more uh, uh, annoyingly. Uh, obviously there's a reason for that. And some of that is that the input that comes from uh, sensation in and around the eye and its, its various components uh, is the uh, basis of the control mechanisms that produce a normal stable tear film that produce the evaporative barrier that maintains the tear film. So diabetics tend to have a lot more problems with dry eye and, and probably in large part because uh, there's significant interference with... Uh, that that transmission of of information, both in both ways, both in terms of sensory and effector or or control mechanisms.
0: Very interesting. I mean, the cornea is the front part of the eye. So, for people that are watching, uh, how about autoimmune disease? If we're looking at rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or sojourn syndrome, how do, why do those people get dry eye? And what percentage do you think of those people do get dry eye?
1: You know, so th- this this is probably one of the most interesting questions today. And and you know, uh, as as you know, and um, hopefully your view, your viewers won't find out during this episode. You know, I can I tend to to be very plain spoken. I say what I think. Uh, sometimes people like it. Sometimes people don't. But you know, you, what you see is pretty much what you're going to get. Um, inflammation has been implicated in dry eye. You know, for quite some time, really, with the genesis of uh, some of the commercially successful anti-inflammatory medications. The reality is um, not all dry eye is associated with inflammation. Most dry eye, the mundane routine, if you will, not that there is such a thing, uh, but you know, the garden variety forms of dry eye really represent a failure of the systems that maintain normal function from working. You know, so uh, and you know we'll talk probably a little bit about meibomian gland function because that's a major contributor to function and dysfunction. Uh, so for many patients, it's a failure to maintain that balance, that homeostasis, and the, and the eye will compensate by doing different things. You know it'll it'll make more tears if it needs to to compensate for a lack of tears or excessive evaporation and so on. When we get into Uh, systemic disease, you know, uh, rheumatoid arthritis being a a great example. uh, Rheumatoid arthritis is a nasty, miserable autoimmune disease where the body attacks itself. You know, typically it attacks joints in in a characteristic way. Rheumatologists certainly are are very familiar with that disorder. Uh, Again, you know, like many things in, in medicine, it's not fully understood, but we have certainly a better idea of what it is and, and, and how it's managed now than we have in the past. Uh, and even though it typically will affect the joints, there are some patients where the impact on the joints, uh, the skeletal system is relatively minor, minor, but for some reason, because inflammation does what inflammation wants, it will attack the eye itself and sometimes the cornea Uh, which is the clear dome that you referred to before that is at the front of of the eye, uh, becomes so uh, horribly attacked that it begins to decompensate. And we see, you know, loss of structure, what we call Uh, punctate keratitis or, you know, surface damage, surface staining. Uh, And uh, this can be extremely painful, very disruptive to vision, uh, can lead to progressive inflammation. So inflammation begets inflammation. Uh, And I've had patients, you know, as I think back over my career, uh, the patients where I've been afraid, you know, and and I believe in taking it home with you, Uh, you know, I don't, you know, some people say, well, you should always leave it in the office, and it's probably healthier to do that, but it's not me, Uh, but the patients I worry most about, uh, and that group would include patients with rheumatoid arthritis, you know, I have one in particular that I literally nursed back uh, to, you know, to function, in fact, I, you know, see her now every three months, I used to see her every day, every, you know, every other day for a while, and then every week, uh, and uh, it's because rheumatoid arthritis is a nasty, a nasty condition that uh, can attack the eye and, uh, provo- and provoke more inflammation locally, as well as this uh, systemic inflammation. Uh, Sjogren syndrome is another interesting one that you mentioned, and that's a Uh, disorder that was first described by uh, Sjogren, who was a physician in the 1920s and 30s, who uh, was the first to really recognize dry eye as an entity. Uh, The dry eye that he was describing was inflammatory dry eye. And again, that's an inflammatory autoimmune disease that happens to attack the moisture producing glands in the body. Which involves both the eye, and the eye is dry in, in that situation, the, the mouth, and uh, so on. You know, even skin and, and, and other areas. Uh, and very, very difficult to treat. Uh, Lupus, again, another uh, autoimmune disease that affects uh, a number of different structures, a great masquerader in many ways, but can sometimes just affect the eye in and of itself, uh, uh, even though it can uh, affect the rest of the body. And those uh, patients need to be treated aggressively with anti-inflammatories because inflammation needs to be controlled. In contrast to the inflammation that occurs as part of the body trying to fix a problem that it can't manage locally through control of you know, functional mechanisms. It can invoke inflammation. That's generally mild uh, compared to the autoimmune inflammation that we see in dry eye.
0: What's interesting in thyroid disease, whether we're talking about Hashimoto's or, or we're talking about Graves' disease, uh, dry eyes are common in people with thyroid, thyroid disease, thyroid eye disease. This showing that there may be a hormonal component, and if yes. you could speak to that,
1: yeah, you know it's interesting. You know, some of these diseases are very, very complex, and uh, uh, the complexity is from a you know uh, an academic you know and a clinical perspective. I think fascinating, uh, but unfortunately for patients, you know, fascinating sometimes means you know absolutely miserable. You know, so thyroid disease can alter uh, the. Uh, Exposure of the eye to the environment, and you know, one of the things that the eye needs to do is maintain uh, control over the amount of exposure, because that in turn uh, controls the amount of evaporation and the you know interface between uh, the tears and the outside environment. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the tear film, one of its main functions, is to serve as a normal environmental barrier. Uh, against incursion from the outside, the same way the skin is essentially a wetsuit that keeps us from dehydrating in, you know, the miserably dry weather in Arizona. Uh, So thyroid disease, number one, can affect that. Thyroid disease can also uh, invoke inflammation. And when we talk about inflammation, very often uh, the areas of attack, Uh, not only are the surface, but also the lacrimal glands, the glands that produce the aqueous or water component of the tears. So these patients often experience dry eye because of, you know, disruption of normal architecture and normal topography, uh, because their eyes are larger and more exposed, more prominent, but also because less tears are produced. And You know, those patients, when they're managed properly systemically, very often those diseases are easier to control. At least their eye manifestations are easier to control. So it's one area where optometry and primary care medicine, endocrinology, and so on uh, can interface very, very well. Dentistry as well uh, in children's disease, for example, uh, where a multidisciplinary approach really makes a big
0: difference. In graves, a lot of times people's eyes will look like they're popping out, something we call proptosis probably about 50% they, they estimate. And that could be a problem. And like you said, that's something that we want to make sure is treated systemically. But when people's eyes are like that, what could we do to help them because they're so uncomfortable?
1: Well, you know, that's, that's, that's a very, very good question because nothing is ever simple. You know, one of the things you learn as you become more experienced clinically is that sometimes the simple uh, is actually very complex. And the complex actually is a... a, a Opportunity to to learn. In fact, one of my my most common uh, you know statements to patients, you know, if I understand what's going on with you, and it's very clear to me, and it's and you know I, I have a good grasp on everything, um, it's going to be easy to address your problems. But I'm not going to learn very much in the process. If you really confuse me and things just don't make sense, I'm still going to address your problems because I don't really have a choice. That's what I do. But I'm going to learn a lot in, in the process uh, of doing it. Uh, so, uh, in a case where you have a significant amount of proptosis, you have to attempt as best you can to reestablish the normal barriers. So, you have to go back to basics. You know, How does the eye uh, maintain structural integrity, at least in, in, you know, relative to the outside environment? Well, what's the tear film? How does the tear film work? The tear film is actually very, very complex. Uh, and the tear foam is a structure like um, any structure that uh, your listeners uh, would be familiar with, like a house. Uh, Tear foam has a foundation. The tear foam has a a middle space and immediate space, like a living space in a house, Uh, and the tear foam has a roof, if you will, Uh, and in the case of a house, the roof keeps moisture out, which is a very important function for uh, a roof, and also gives the uh, entire house structure with beams and joists and so on. Uh, in the case of the uh, tear film, the roof is made of lipids. Lipids are produced by glands called meibomian glands, which are often dysfunctional due to you know modern times and visual tasking and things we can we can talk about in more detail. But if you can restore this normal uh, structure, then even in a situation where the eye is uh, overexposed because it's bulging out. Uh, you're you're way ahead of the of the game. In addition to that, you may need to uh, supplement the tears. We we use a variety of things. Um, I've recently discovered a European product uh, called Sica Forte, uh, S I C C A F O R T E, which is a carbomer-based uh, gel, which remarkably doesn't cause a lot of uh, blurring but it actually is a very effective mucin substitute. Basically, it bulks up the tears so that it makes the tears more uh, sustainable and, and, and actually improves patient comfort. And it helps them stretch. It makes them more elastic. So again, in an eye that's bigger and, and more prominent, uh, it helps as well. Sometimes uh, in more advanced cases, we have to create an artificial barrier. Sometimes uh, if it's not a, a very, very profound uh, amount of exposure. We can use a soft contact lens. Sometimes we have to use a larger rigid lens like a scleral lens, which is a shell uh, that creates a a solid barrier, if you will, maintaining moisture. Sometimes we can use moisture goggles. We can use goggles that actually have a padding around it to uh, reduce evaporation. But most importantly, in a patient like that, you really want to get their systemic disease controlled because most often, uh, many of the problems will minimize once that occurs.
0: So about 18 million people have sleep apnea and they're more, co- more likely to have floppy eyelid syndrome, more common in males than females. They, lo- they have lower blood oxygen levels. How, why do they have dry eyes and what have you seen with apnea
1: patients? Yeah, you know, that, that, that's, that's also a, a great question. You know, you're, you're hitting a out at the park with really good questions. Uh, And some of these are are somewhat esoteric for many of our colleagues that, you know, don't uh, have the benefit of, you know, having patients that uh, have generally been, you know, to several offices without relief. And, uh, you know, we, I call our practice, um, jokingly, the cradle of misery in Phoenix, because, you know, we get these patients that have really suffered and suffered and really not found resolution. Uh, Sleep apnea is a, a, a miserable, but unfortunately very very common uh, disorder we see it in patients that tend to be you know somewhat overweight we see it more commonly as you mentioned you know there's a there's a sex difference you know in males more often it's also associated with conditions like you know keratoconus which in and of itself can change the shape of the eye which can lead to dry eye but what's actually happening is the lids need to close uh, reasonably well if the tear film is stable as say it would be in an infant the eyes can stay somewhat open without any problems. So, you know, very often you'll hear parents uh, complain or ask questions to pediatricians or, or their optometrists or ophthalmologists. Oh my God, my baby's sleeping with their eyes open. They look possessed, you know, uh, is there a problem? And the answer is no, generally not. You know, they, they recover from it. Uh, when a patient has um, exposure caused by a lack of proper lid closure and their tear form is unstable, what ends up happening is the eye desiccates or the eye dries out. Typically in a classical pattern, we see damage you know, at the area where the lid and the uh, upper and lower lid would normally be closed, but remain somewhat open. It also depends on whether or not the eye rolls up naturally, which it typically does in normal patients protectively during sleep. Uh, but when you have uh, a patient who has floppy eyelid syndrome, the anatomy that keeps the eye closed is 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 bad, so they have tremendous amount of difficulty achieving uh, you know good stable lid closure throughout the night. In addition, often the lids will open somewhat and they will get abrasions on you know pillow corners and things like that. Uh, so those patients have a much higher proportion of what we would put in the bucket of dry eye because of just a lack of normal anatomy and function of, of the lids, which are. Uh, important. And there's one one other quick thing that I'll mention. The lids are the most effective pumping mechanism we have for some of the elements that maintain a functional stable tear film. And when you have essentially floppy, you know, really not effective lid function, uh, you probably reduce meibomian gland clearance and meibomian gland function, which contributes to that as well.
0: And the patient can lay in bed and make their, make it their, head could hit the pillow and their eyelid could just flip up and they could wind up scratching the front of their eye. Yeah,
1: which they do. And, I, and actually, sometimes they'll initially present this as an emergency, you know, with a, with an abrasion that they'll get in the middle of the night. Uh, sometimes those patients will come in and say, you know, I, when I wake up in the morning, I literally have to pry my eyes open, you know, using my fingers, you know, because my eyes are so dry and sticky that they won't open it on their own. It's just too painful for me to do that. I actually have to you know, kind of pry them
0: open and, you know, hope for, for tears to start forming. At Alligant Eye Care, their goal is to protect and preserve vision. It's not just what they do, but it's who they are. They've been creating innovative products and services for providers and patients for over 70 years, and they continue to push the boundaries of what's possible in eye care each and every day.
1: Macular degeneration is a leading cause of vision loss, with 15% of Americans being at risk or already affected. Scientific evidence proves that by using mesozeaxanthin, lutein, and zeaxanthin together, replenishes the macular pigment and promotes healthier vision. This formula comes in only one product, MacuHealth.
0: How about for our patients who are using a CPAP machine, and that's drying out their eye?
1: Yep. Yeah, CPAP CPAPs are the are, are the, the devil's work <laughs> uh, you know for for dry eye patients. It also depends on the generation and you know how it's fitted. Uh, if it's fitted properly and it's a newer generation CPAP, generally we have less problems. Uh, but CPAPs will often not seal properly. And if you have floppy eyelid syndrome, which is very common in that group, as you, as you astutely noted, uh, you end up with air blowing uh, over the eye in a plane drying. The, and what I mean by plane, you know, plane this way, not flying plane. Uh, they, you know, they just, it just dries them out terribly. And it can actually do a significant amount of damage. Uh, a company called Eye Eco makes uh, a, Uh, goggle, a silicone goggle, which conforms nicely to the shape of the eye and actually has little uh, extended flaps that uh, you can put the CPAP over so that blows air over the clothes or actually blows air over the goggle instead of blowing it into the eye. Uh, And uh, that works well for some patients.
0: Allergies and asthma patients are at greater risk for dry eye. They complain of dry eye and their medications that they take. If you could go over that a little bit.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that, that's spot on. Uh, first of all, allergy, you know, is the gift that keeps on giving with, uh, with dry eye. And, and essentially what I mean, uh, you know, by that is uh, one of the first things we learned years and years ago before we had really good allergy medications is to dilute the tear film, uh, you know, contents with artificial tears. You know, so it was like a first line uh, allergy medication, you know, prior to effective pharmaceuticals. Uh, so the volume of the tears uh, is an important uh, protective factor against allergens uh, which uh, can cause reactions that are somewhat dependent on the concentration of the allergen so if you if you have a dry eye and you're allergic uh, it's going to be worse because you don't really have the uh, you know protective ability of a of a tear film and the drainage of the tear film you know a functional tear film to to wash that away uh, in, in addition uh, you know, patients who have asthma also tend to have significant amounts of allergy uh, as well. Plus, as you as you know, the medications often are drying, uh, so you have less production of the aqueous or the watery component of the tears, which again contributes, you know, cyclically by uh, you know causing even more drying. So, you know, kind of spirals out of control. You know, fortunately, there are uh, newer medications, topical medications that work well uh, for many of these allergy uh, patients that don't produce drying. It's really the systemic medications, especially the older generation, antihistamines, that, uh, you know, will produce significant uh, drying. So those patients can generally be managed well, although they certainly, you know, have a, a raft of
0: other problems. The medications that could cause dry eyes, uh, such as hormones, estrogen, progesterone, some of the hypertension medications like hydrochlorothiazide. You could talk a little bit about that. The retinoids. Yeah.
1: I, I mean, we literally, you know, we, we have lists of medications that cause dry eyes. And the, the medications today are so ubiquitous. You know, if you go back a generation or two, uh, we, we uh, had patients that really uh, were in better shape. Uh, you know, they, they uh, were leaner, you know, the their body uh, uh, fat you know, was much, much lower, so they tended to be healthier. And then, you know, I, I remember you take a history and, you know, you know uh, an elderly patient might have one or two uh, medications, maybe for hypertension or something like that. Today, if I see someone who's over uh, 50 and I don't have to scroll through the list of medications, I'm actually surprised. Uh, and I think m- most of us and many of the primary care physicians don't realize that many of these things produce uh, a significant amount of uh, of drying potential. You know, for example, antidepressants and you know some of the you know, psychoactive drugs can produce significant drying. Uh, and in in those cases, you know, I think what's often overlooked is the psychological impact of dry eye in and of itself. You know, we routinely have patients who. When they sense that relief is possible, uh, they're so severely impacted, uh, they break down in tears. They literally will start sobbing and crying because it's such an emotional thing for them. Uh, and many of the routine medications that we take, you know, from antihistamines, as you mentioned, the hypertension medications, diuretics, certainly, uh, uh, you know, and, and there's uh, other medications I'm not even thinking of right now that uh, you know produce drying. Uh, one of the things that I think every patient should do, uh, because a patient today has to be their own advocate, is when they get a new medication, there's a package insert. Uh, and it makes sense to, you know, I know it's it's not, it doesn't make for pleasant reading, it's, you know, it's not a novel, but it does make sense to read about the, the potential interactions uh, and the potential complications that can occur, so that if they suddenly develop dry eye symptoms, they can then either return to their optometrist or ophthalmologist or their primary care physician or the prescriber and say, you know, my eyes have, you know, started to get really dry since that medication uh, that you prescribed, uh, you know, kicked in. And I started, you know, when I started taking it, you know, is there something else? You know, we see that, you know, we see medication effects. I had a patient uh, not long ago, uh, you know, probably three or four months ago who had uh, amiodarone toxicity. You know, it's, a, it's a drug used for cardiac problems. It hasn't been used a lot in years, but he happened to be on it. And he had this uh, verticillata, this whirl-like pattern in his cornea, which indicated toxicity, which is problematic. Uh, so, you know, of course, I sent him back to his cardiologist who was familiar with the complication. And that's an extreme example and not dry eye related, but, uh, you know, dry eye can be nasty and if it's already somewhat prevalent, somewhat present in the patient. Making it worse uh, really is not, not a good
0: thing. Even osteoporosis and migraines uh, sufferers are associated with dry eyes.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I think, you know, it's, inter- it's interesting that you say that. Yeah, yes, it's true. Uh, <laughs> but once you start getting into, uh, you know, I think this, this wastebasket of everything that's associated with dry eye, you know, migraine sufferers probably, there's a, a neurologic uh, aspect to it, uh, because, you know, obviously migraines are, are somewhat complicated from a, a neurological point of view, but me, there are many, many things, I mean, literally almost anything that we do in modern times, uh, you know, can produce dry eye. There's some things not, you know, and uh, so I think patients need to ask questions. I think doctors need to be uh, familiar with it, I would venture to say that some of our colleagues are not familiar with some of these more esoteric uh, aspects uh, of, you know, of dry eye. Uh, and some get overly uh, lost in the source, if you will, because you have to really think about what can I do when you're looking at the patient that will make a difference in this patient's life? You know, what what do I, what do I need to do Uh, that uh, will make them less symptomatic, make them much more comfortable and and make their life better. Uh, And, you know, I can't take away their migraines, but I can stabilize their tear foam. You know, same thing with Sjogren's. You know, many years ago, uh, you know, we talked about Sjogren's just a minute ago. It's a nasty, miserable disease. I had a patient that suffered from Sjogren's for over 20 years. It, It really had significant negative impact on her life. She came in with wraparound glasses. Her face was a mask of pain. Uh, and uh, I realized very quickly, I couldn't make more tears, you know, children's is a disease of lack of tears, but I could stabilize the tears and make the tears more effective, which I was able to do. Uh, last I saw her was, you know, two or three years ago. Uh, she hasn't been back. And uh, I know the reason why is because she's doing fine. Last uh, two times I saw her, uh, she was uh, not wearing her wraparound glasses and she was out playing golf Uh, And, you know, she had her life back because, you know, I came up, came up with a strategy for managing that. So, you know, to your point, lots of things uh, can be associated with dry eye, but from a clinician's point of view, as someone managing it, you have to realize, uh, you know, what, what you can do to have positive impact on, on, on their clinical situation. One of the worst is chemo. Yeah. In fact, you know, I'm really glad you mentioned it because, you know, I think anybody who does what we do develops emotional ties to patients, uh, and um, you know, those emotional ties are very strong. And I think a lot of patients don't understand just, you know, how connected we are to them. Uh, several years ago, a uh, a lovely woman came in. She had just finished a course of chemo for metastatic breast cancer. Uh, and she was in a- utter misery. I mean, she was just in uh, just a horrible agony. Very bright woman, owned a business, you know, successful, large business, uh, and was almost incapacitated. She had uh, virtually no mybomian glands. Chemotherapy, not every chemo uh, variation, but many forms of chemo will destroy the mybomian glands, which are essential uh, as, um, you know, manufacturing uh, uh, facilities for the lipids that create a stable tear structure. Uh, you know, they're, they're uh, you know, manufacturing sites and storage tanks, if you will, for lipids that stabilize the tears. Uh, and what was interesting about her is that her tear film was extremely stable, which made absolutely no sense. Uh, And, you know, I'm looking at her lack of glands. She's absolutely miserable. Uh, Her tear foam is stable as a rock. I mean, it looked like a perfectly normal tear foam, which made, you know, that made no sense. Uh, And then when I started examining her uh, using a slit lamp microscope, her tear foam looked like gelatin. I mean, the tear foam was so viscous that it was, uh, 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 you know, it was incredible. I mean, it was only, I'd never seen a thicker tear film. And that led to a series of, you know, essentially epiphanies where I began to better understand what was happening. And this was a, an example of what I see now all the time because I'm looking for it and I recognize it the eye was trying to write a choke. It was it was adjusting the manufacture of gel-forming mucins to compensate for the lack of lipids. And this is a perfect example of what we talked about before: homeostasis, this need of the body to maintain balance. So, you know, in her case, she's doing well now. We're using a lot of advanced technology, IPL and a number of other things. And she functions. She's, you know, we've given her her life back. I, you know, I see her all the time, uh, and uh, it's one of the, you know, it's one of those great things that, you know, it's one of the great things that we can do where we can make that level of difference in a patient's life, especially someone who has faced such adversity and come through it. So, uh, yeah, chemo, chemo can be very, very nasty
0: when it comes to dry eye. Close to 30% of patients with dry eye have depression. In fact, there was a a famous broadcaster that's been in the news, uh, Shannon Breen, who supposedly considered suicide because of her misery from dry eye.
1: Yeah, in fact, uh, I I happen to to like her as a newscaster. You know, she's a uh, you know straight shooter, no political uh, commentary man. But I just happen to like her as a newscaster. Uh, And I was actually shocked to see—you never think of it. She's this, you know, intelligent. you know, lovely uh, competent presenter uh, and you would think you know she's you know she's just perfect you know she has an idyllic life you know she's you know a famous uh, you know famous person uh, and uh, i was actually quite shocked to learn uh, that she suffered from severe dry eye she also suffered from a related condition called recurrent corneal erosion syndrome which was you know one of the uh, you know major factors that i think was driving some of the depression because that's one of these incredibly uh, uh, nasty mean-spirited conditions where you go to sleep at night and you don't know if you're going to be woken up feeling like someone just jabbed you in the eye with a sharp uh, poker. Uh, And uh, finally, she found someone who figured that out and uh, is able to manage her dry eye. But she was very uh, upfront and, uh, you know, uh, transparent about the impact that this had on her life. And we see this all the time, you know, as I mentioned, You know, patients um, you know break down in tears all the time. There's a sense of hopelessness. Uh, It's hard to imagine if you don't suffer from dry eye just how debilitating it can be. There is no relief. There's no escape. Uh, You know, it's it's agonizing. You know, I look at dry eye in three buckets: uh, discomfort, grittiness, burning, irritation. uh, You know, similar you know somatic uh, you know discomfort elements. There's visual instability where the patient's you know, don't have a stable you know, uh, uh, you know, visual, visual perspective. They can't look at a computer without you know, blinking and you know, struggling to focus. And then there's the aesthetic a- aspect of it where the patients look like they haven't slept in weeks. And, uh, and this continues to mount and it's chronic and it's progressive. And uh, many of our colleagues just aren't that in tune with this And they just hand out artificial tears, which basically do nothing, uh, and or maybe prescribe a medication that may not be helpful or put in punctal plugs, which I don't think do very much. Uh, And the patient begins a cycle of, you know, increasing uh, helplessness, because they're going to someone who, you know, should be helping and isn't helping in the way they need. Uh, And eventually, they hopefully find someone who can, but uh, we often see, you know, not only depression, but we see how it affects the entire family. Uh, you know, we see, uh, you know, husbands and wives coming along with them, and you can you can just see how disruptive this is. And the fact that it's dry eye and everyone's, oh, dry eye, it's, you know, stop complaining. Just take some of these drops and you'll be fine. You know, it kind of minimizes something that's not minimal for them. So it's, yeah, it's a big,
0: big issue. You brought up the cancer patient who was producing cures that were like gelatin. Talk about the concept of homeostasis. I know that's something that you feel is very important in the treatment and the whole concept of dry eyes or the cause of dry
1: eye. Right, you know that's homeostasis, uh, Kerry is 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 a new a new concept. Uh, My epiphany came before the definition, uh, and at first I didn't realize that the definition was you know in 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 embraced my my epiphany. Uh, and uh, we can thank Kelly Nichols, who's uh, uh, a colleague and the dean of optometry uh, at UAB uh, in, in uh, Alabama, uh, who's a brilliant researcher. And uh, she was in charge of the definitions committee for the dues to report. Uh, and I know she was instrumental in adding the concept of failure to maintain homeostasis. Uh, homeostasis was um, was first described in the 1930s uh, by a physician from Harvard named Walter Cannon in a book called Wisdom of the Body. Although I think the concept had been around but he was the first to really you know, focus on it. Uh, and uh, in a simplistic way, homeostasis uh, essentially describes what happens if you go out you know, into very cold weather without warm clothing. Uh, the blood shunts away from the periphery and moves to the core, so that the heart and lungs can continue to function. Uh, and uh, if you're still cold, you know you'll start to shiver to generate heat because the muscles, you know, as they start to work, uh, they'll produce heat. And the exact opposite, in, you know, in the summer in Arizona, you'll start to, you know, flush as your vessels dilate to bleed off heat, and you'll start to sweat to create evaporative cooling. In the eye, it's much more complex than that. And you know, I, I've I've taken you know, homeostasis essentially means that. Uh, you know, the eye is uh, under uh, you know, an exquisitely complex uh, network of control and, uh, uh, and sensory, uh, uh, I guess, pr- not procedures but sec- sensory uh, uh, functions uh, so that everything remains in balance. So the uh, concept of homeostasis in my patient, there are uh, cells on the surface of the eye called goblet cells. And goblet cells produce mucins, which can produce gels. There are two different types of mucins. There's transmembrane mucins, which help anchor the tear film, create a foundation. And there's gel-forming mucins, which create cushions and, and, and uh, you know, essentially uh, viscous uh, viscosity to the tear film. Normally, you know, they they are bit players in the overall tear film dynamic. In this particular case, because of this... Uh, uh, young woman wasn't able to make enough lipid to maintain a stable tear film, the brain figured out that things weren't uh, working uh, as they needed to and invoked the goblet cells to produce additional mucin. So, you know, again, it, it created that balance. You know, as, as I, you know, as I kind of look at it, there is a dimensionality to how the eye functions uh, and the fact that every single system that maintains a tear film interacts with every other system. And I consider the third dimension most of us work in the first dimension, which is, oh, your eye is dry. Here's a bottle of artificial tears. Some of us work in two dimensions. Oh, your eye is, is dry. Um, and I'm going to give you some tears. I'm going to give you an anti inflammatory. I'm going to do something else. And I recognize that there is constant change depending on the environment because when you go to Tampa, you don't have such a bad dry eye. When you go to, uh, uh, you know, come back to Phoenix, your dry eye gets worse. The third dimension is that not only is all of that happening, but uh, everything that happens is interacting with everything else, which makes for this exquisitely complex uh, and really beautifully elegant system of, of maintaining what is probably the single most important sense for survival in, in, in humans. Uh, so that's the long story uh, of homeostasis.
0: So you brought this up. Why do we ever tear from? <laughs> well,
1: God only knows. But, uh, <laughs> You it I, you know, it's so funny i tell patients i tell patients, you know if you know let, let's say you know if you believe in god which is one you know i don't get into religious issues you know because you never know uh you know i said if you you know if you believe in god and uh in, and uh, god was looking for an engineer and he said hey it's you you're the engineer make an eye <laughs> you know create an eye so you know, if it was me and I was an engineer, I'd say, okay, I'm just going to make a dry eye. You know, why why would I want to go to the trouble of making tears and you know producing them and you know and 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 making them anti-infective and creating viscosity and preventing evaporation and countering gravity and and you know I could go on for a half an hour with all the things that tears have to do, uh, you know. But the problem is that doesn't work because. Um, tears create a perfectly smooth refractive surface. I tell patients it's the only solution to a fundamental problem of all mammals and, and humans in particular, because we're so high in the evolutionary change. Without tears, we wouldn't be able to see well enough to survive. We wouldn't find food. We wouldn't recognize friend from foe, dinosaur from pet. Uh, you know, So tears uh, like a reflecting pool, create this perfectly smooth surface. And secondarily, once you commit to a wet environment, tears also have to serve the functions that we alluded to before, uh, separate, you know, this delicate uh, complex uh, surface from the outside environment, which is ever changing and often very, very harsh. So, uh, you know, we have tears nothing happens by accident. You know, if there's, if there's one example, you know, one, one area where that's absolutely true, uh, you know, we don't end up with a million, you know, billion corneal nerves for no reason. Uh, you know, any more than we ended up with the tear foam because it, it, neither was easy to do. You know, there's a reason for it. What do you think the main symptoms of dry eye? Well, you know, it, it, you know I mentioned before, I, I put, a, put it into three buckets, you know, you know, the, the discomfort, the irritation, the burning, the grittiness, the, you know, that, that sometimes excessive tearing, because that kind of goes along, uh, you know, with, with that, it's just a variation of it. Uh, and the other one is, is blurry vision. And the other one is, is, you know, redness and, you know, aesthetic or, or cosmetic issues. Uh, the majority of patients I see complain of discomfort. There's usually a little bit of column A, column B, column C. Uh, you know, very few people come in with white, beautiful, clear-looking eyes and have profound dry eye. Uh, but I would say, you know, the majority of patients, probably, you know, 75 to 85% uh, of the patients that I see uh, come in complaining of the discomfort elements or and probably about twenty percent of them excessive tearing. Reason why the, they tear excessively, which you know seems you know completely opposite to what you would expect, uh, is because reflex tearing kicks in. You know we have this secondary tearing system, uh, which washes things away because you know nature figured out that uh, when uh, mankind, you know womankind, first roamed the earth, we didn't have nail clippers or nail files or manicures or soaps and, you know, and hand washing. So if you put your finger in your eye, you'd mess your cornea up and end up losing your eye. And that would be, you know, that would be it for you. So we got uh, created with a uh, reflex tearing system to wash things away. And everyone's familiar with it because everyone's tasted their tears. You know whether maybe they were a baby when they cried or, or whatever, you know, it's salt water uh, in contrast to the tears that I mentioned before, the, uh, the uh, basal tears, which are structural in, in nature. So, uh definitely, definitely a discomfort with the, the
0: leading presentation that we see. It's always interesting when a patient is tearing a lot and we tell them they have dry eyes, they look very befuddled. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's,
1: it's funny. I, you know, I, I always prepare. I go, I know you're going to think this is kind of crazy, uh, but you have a dry eye. And, and let me tell you, some of those patients are among the most uh, badly impacted uh, I had a a gentleman, really nice guy, you know a, a a salesman who did a tremendous amount of flying back back in the day when we could fly. Uh, and he came in with a golf ring. and you know i don't I don't play golf myself. I, I have, and that's why I don't, because uh, I'm so <laughs> bad at it. but I, I spare my friends my my golfing uh, my golfing skills but I remember winning a golf rag uh, as a consolation prize for the worst golfer of the day. And I thought, boy, this is a really long, you know, long rag. This poor guy walked in with a golf rag that was soaked with tears, which was, which was gross, to be honest with you. It was, uh, and uh, you know, he literally traveled around mopping his eyes continuously. Thankfully we were able to straighten him out pretty quickly and then he he moved away. And uh, I haven't seen him in quite a while, but you know, uh, he was, His dry eye was actually a wet eye. (laughs) What do you think the main causes of dry eye are? Oh, that's uh, interesting. The main causes of dry eye. I think um, the main causes of dry eye, you could blame on Wozniak and Jobs. I think I blame those two guys. (laughs) uh, Because, you know, uh, (laughs) we forget uh, that not all that long ago, uh, no one read you know, in fact, if you think back to the Westerns that, you know, you may have enjoyed as much as I did when I was a kid, uh, you know, you'd buy the land owner or the land purchaser, I should say, they like say, put your mark here, because, you know, it was illiterate, you, you know, make an X, and, you know, back in those days, you know, everything was, you know, word, you know, you trust someone on their word, and I guess on their mark, uh, and uh, my own grandfather, uh, much to his embarrassment at times, was illiterate, you know, he, he grew up in a horrible environment in in Romania and just never uh, was educated and uh, uh, you know my grandmother read thankfully but uh, my parents obviously did or not obviously but they did my father you know graduated from college and uh, was not much of a reader you know my mom was an avid reader she read you know constantly but reading is also very different You know, my brother was a was a bookworm uh, and he would get yelled at you know put the book down go get fresh air you know (laughs) Uh, which w- if you grew up in the Bronx was another way of uh, your parents saying, we, we're we tired of seeing you go get kidnapped. So, uh, <laughs> you know, get out, get some fresh air, go find some friends. And, uh, uh, you know, so reading was, you know, for me, I, I, I was a science fiction, uh, you know, addict as a, you know, as a young kid, uh, but I put the book down, you know, and, and, and TV was a, you know, a seven inch screen in a beautiful mahogany cabinet that, you know, we, We gathered around and used our imagination on. Uh, In in 1977, the Apple II was introduced. It was the first commercial computer uh, on the market. There were others, you know, there were breadboard computers and things like that. 1982 uh, was the IBM PC. It, you know, took uh, a decade for it to begin to propagate into offices, the creation of software like VisiCalc for the Apple and and uh, Lotus uh, one two three uh, maybe bringing you back old memories uh, and and people started using it in offices and then word processors became you know fairly common and and then it became household uh, about 12, 13 years ago the iPhone was introduced and suddenly computers were now traveling with everyone uh, you know I haven't been in a in a restaurant in you know a, a year uh, but <laughs> back. Back in my youth, when I would, uh, you know, go to restaurants and uh, you know be able to interact with people, you'd look around and and you'd see, you know, married couples would, you know, be texting and reading news as they were having their dinner. You know, so we spend so much time uh, in front of computers and and inputting information. The brain, you know, is very very powerful. It, it doesn't like the interference of the blink. The blink is a natural uh, element in the overall function of the system that maintains the eyes integrity and the tear foam in particular, uh, its function and integrity and inhibited blinking among other factors, dietary changes as well. Uh, The fact that we don't uh, take in, uh, you know, omega-3s at the level we really need them, EPA in my estimation, uh, importantly. Uh, you know, has all contributed. And it's kind of crescendo today with, you know, young kids who spend their lives in front of computers and iPhones and gamers, uh, barely uh, completing a blink, the blink needs to complete for lipid to be released effectively. Uh, and what ends up happening is you end up with a tear film that just isn't doing what it needs to do. And uh, the patient gets worse and worse and more and more symptomatic. and And here we
0: are today. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. Es natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.